0: presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
1: He spent 20 years as Idaho's Attorney General. Now after losing his May primary, Lawrence Wasden sits down with us to reflect on his career. I'm Melissa Davlin, Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, producer Ruth Brown explores funding challenges for rural domestic violence programs in Idaho. Then, outgoing Attorney General Lawrence Wasden joins me to discuss his career and the transition to the incoming Raul Labrador administration. But first, on Tuesday, former state legislator High Clock died at the age of 75. Clock served three terms in the Idaho House after winning his first election in 2012 and was a current member of the Greater Boise Auditorium District. Clock was born in 1947 in a displaced persons camp in Germany to Polish Holocaust survivors. Earlier this year, Idaho Public Television produced a documentary about his life. Here's part of that interview.
2: I've always admired my parents not only for being able to survive the war and the Holocaust but also because they came to this country with two kids on their arms not knowing the language not having basically anything and being able to make it at least survive. My earliest memory that I, that I see, I think is true, was when we were coming over on the boat and I remember everybody standing on the boat throwing up. But I also remember my mother and everybody else when we uh, were near the Statue of Liberty started saying America. So for a long time I thought America was that big statue. in. New York's harbor because everyone kept saying America over and over again. The people that we associated with for the most part were all Holocaust survivors. I, re- I, would re- I remember they would have little card games, you know, penny or two rummy, and I would look at their arms of some of the friends that came over and they they all had numbers and tattoos and not those kind of tattoos, just numbers. And I would ask my mother why I couldn't have a number, because I didn't. She would tell me nothing. All of my friends, the ones in Brooklyn, kids I went to school with were DP campers. So there were a lot of people who had similar experiences and now they were starting new.
1: You can see the full interview at IdahoPTV.org slash Idaho Reports. There, you'll also find this week's Idaho Reports podcast. Associate producer Logan Finney is joined by Idaho Public Television executive producer Bill Manny to discuss what they learned when producing the new documentary that premiered this weekend on Idaho Experience, Remembering the Sunshine Mine Disaster. You can subscribe to the Idaho Reports podcast on your favorite podcast player. On Tuesday, Boise State criminal justice researchers shared the results of a survey regarding crime victim needs. The biennial report on victimization and victim services. One recommendation in the report is the legislature should appropriate flexible funding for crime victim service providers in Idaho. Currently, Idaho is one of the only states that provides no general funds for domestic violence services outside of the funding for the state's Council on Domestic Violence and Victim Assistance. Service providers rely almost entirely on federal funding. Earlier this year, producer Ruth Brown took a look at the funding around domestic violence services and how that impacts rural Idahoans. Despite the thousands
0: of incidents of domestic violence that occur every year in Idaho, the state still provides almost no general fund dollars to domestic violence services. The bulk of the services are paid for through federal grants. For rural areas such as Oneida County, funding streams are a source of constant worry. The Oneida Crisis Center helps roughly 100 victims a year.
3: We've been on our community for 25 years, helping individuals whose lives have been thrown into trauma because of actions, if not their own. And each year, there's the, the stress of finding the finances, the monies to sustain our program. Without the competitive grants, we would not have any money, basically. My my few community members would not equal sustainability. United Way would maybe keep us limping along, but not our full range of services. So sustainability is a concern.
0: The Oneida County shelter does not apply for the funding they'd receive from any state dedicated dollars.
3: The domestic violence state funds are collected from marriage certificates, divorces, Our county is small, so we don't have a lot of those. So the pool of money that I could pull from for for that grant, again, it's competitive, is little. And so I have chosen for the last couple of years to let that little bit of money go to my um, sister agencies within our region.
0: According to the Idaho Council on Domestic Violence and Victim Assistance, the money most shelters in the state rely on is nearly all federal dollars. 93%
4: of our uh, victim service funding comes from federal grants. The bulk of those is um, VOCA funding or Victims of Crime Act, which is not taxpayer money, but it's penalties on federal crimes. And that was uh, paid out of what's called the Crime Victims Fund, which was declining for a variety of reasons. There was some legislation passed in July of 2021 called the VOCA fix to start um, increasing the balance again, but unfortunately, the increase has been slower than we thought. That dedicated fund that Llewellyn also referred to generates $15 per marriage license,
0: $20 per divorce, and $10 per protection order violation. Those funds can be used for domestic violence shelters and anything that isn't covered by a federal grant. But according to the council, the dedicated fund formula is flawed. They hope to address that with the legislature this year.
4: Right now it's distributed based on where the marriage license was issued, which has nothing to do with the need for domestic violence services. So we're proposing that we take need and demand into account so we can put that money where it's most needed. Idaho shelters and domestic violence service providers receive no direct general funds from
0: the state. According to a 2021 report from the Montana Board of Crime Control, neighboring Washington state has several funds for sexual assault and domestic violence victims using general funds, totaling more than $8 million a year, while Wyoming applies $3.4 million in general funds each year. Some legislators hope to change the funding in Idaho.
1: The budget is a reflection of our priorities and values. And um, for a long time since I've served in this legislature and decades before me, there have been people that have been begging for money to go toward victim services. Now, in a state that is so resistant to take federal funds, you would think we'd wanna do it the Idaho way and help our citizens. So I'd like to see our state allocate monies toward that cause.
0: The Idaho Coalition Against Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault also sees a need for state funding. The coalition also operates predominantly on federal funding and more funding could allow them to offer more resources. The Idaho coalition is
4: um, one of the few coalitions, very few coalitions in the country who do not have state appropriated funds specifically for domestic violence programs.
0: The Oneida Crisis Center offers services for people experiencing sexual assaults, stalking, domestic violence, and human trafficking.
3: Domestic violence and family violence isn't selective as to where it happens, and it happens in our rural community. In fact, maybe it's a little easier to happen here because we're isolated, and folks are isolated, and they're marginalized from the mainstream power. Structure. I mean they don't have lots of places they can go to get services. And so not only is the uh, the United Crisis Center so valuable to victims of violence, but to our community at whole. And our whole mission statement is that we want a prosperous and and healthy community. And so if we can help family relationships be healthy, that's going to benefit our community and society at a whole. The need is there and will continue to be. So, we started collecting um, last July
4: what we call need and demand data on counseling and housing. And we were asking how many um, victims are you able to shelter and how many are on your waiting list? And those numbers were a bit shocking because we found that there's almost as many people needing shelter and waitlisted for it as people we are able to shelter. The other data point we we're tracking is waitlists for counseling, both for adults and kids. And again, the number of people waitlisted and the amount of time that they have to be on a waitlist before getting services is very high, which tells us that there is just like our programs were telling us, there is more demand for services than services available right now. Meanwhile, the council continues to prioritize the funding it does have. The council is trying to keep services available for victims statewide, because wherever you live in the state, you deserve access to services if you need them. And if we're going to do that and help our rural programs survive, we have to have some way to prioritize how the funds are spent and distributed, where we take into account need and demand. So as part of our strategic plan is that we've agreed to prioritize direct services, which means funding jobs for things like counselors and victim advocates, funding shelters, funding the direct services, which is basically food, shelter, counseling, those types of things for victims statewide. Plans to address the funding distribution are in the works for the
0: next legislative session.
4: We also have a heavy lift. We're trying to change our administrative rules this session, which impacts how we spread our federal money throughout the state. And in the past, that VOCA money has been distributed based on square miles and population, which has no tie to need and demand, and our other funding stream, FIPSA, has been just evenly divided around the state, but we don't have an even number of DV shelters in each region of the state. We work collaboratively with um, stakeholders, our funded programs, to go through a negotiated rulemaking session, which was very well attended. And we have a new model for grant distribution that we're hoping to have the legislature approve this session so that our next grant cycle, we can take need and demand data into account when we have to spend those limited funds. We all need to be involved in ending domestic violence and ending gender-based violence. And this is not just a family issue. This is not
0: a private issue. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, call the national hotline at 1-800-799-7233 or text 88788.
1: Joining me today is Attorney General Lawrence Wasden. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, we haven't heard much from you since the primary other than the regular business from your office, consumer protection, court cases. Um, I did wanna ask you, how is the transition to the incoming Labrador administration going?
5: First of all, let me take a personal moment and tell you thank you. Uh, you and I have known each other a long, long time. Uh, you are a tremendous reporter. Uh, you've always treated me with fairness and kindness. Uh, been willing to challenge me uh, and ask me hard questions, And but. Always been appropriate, professional. So I wanted to say thank you to you.
1: I appreciate that. Thank you.
5: And thank you. And, and also the staff here, um, I've always been treated with respect and kindness, and I, I wanted to say thanks. Thank
1: and, you. They're they're a great crew. We're yeah. we're proud of them.
5: In terms of the transition, everything's going as we would ex- expect, as as it should be. And um, you know, uh, it's not my my style or my my time to seek the limelight.
1: You know, when you say it's going as we expect, is it going smoothly? Do you anticipate, in other words, any interruptions to things like consumer protection services or the functions of the Attorney General's office that affect Idahoans?
5: We will perform our duties uh, to the end of our, uh, to the end of my term, and then uh, that will be picked up by an incoming administration, and really that's up to them.
1: I, I did want to ask you a couple more questions about the incoming administration. Um, you know, Incoming Attorney General, Raul Labrador, is sta- uh, reestablishing the Solicitor General position in that office. Um, what are your thoughts on this? In other words, y- you didn't have a Solicitor General in the Attorney General's office, uh, somebody who um, oversees challenges to the federal government um, or encroachments on state sovereignty. Why not?
5: We actually did have someone. We just didn't give him the title of Solicitor General. Brian Kane in my office oversaw all of those things, and so uh, you know the new administration wants someone with a title, and that's clearly the choice that they get to make. But it isn't that we were avoiding that. It's we did it. We just didn't think the title was necessary.
1: You mentioned Brian Kane, Mm -hmm. and he, of course, a few months ago uh, went on to a new position. Um, Have more employees left than what we would normally see during a transition between administrations?
5: Well, you know, I've been in office 20 years, so we haven't had a lot of those, so I don't know what the normal number is, but but there have been a significant number of people who have left. Uh, I I told folks this, that um, they've been very loyal to me, they have done exactly what I asked them to do, that was to call balls and strikes fairly and squarely, that they needed to make decisions that was best for them professionally and best for their families. And if uh, finding other employment was best for them, then they should do that and consider that as loyalty to me. And if they felt that staying was best for them professionally and for their families, they should consider that loyalty to me. So really it's it's what they are seeking rather than what I am directing or seeking.
1: Did any of the employees who quit Cite the incoming administration as the reason that they quit?
5: Well, uh, you know, I'm, they made the decision based upon what, what they felt was best for them and for their families.
1: You know, I, I do have to ask you served five terms as Idaho's Attorney General. Were you surprised with the results of the May primary?
5: Um, that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> you know, I was really tired. I'd, I'd been the Attorney General, I've been the Attorney General 20 years. That's a long time. And uh, I didn't really want to run. Uh, in fact, I'd made the decision not to run. And uh, But then there were some folks who came to me, and uh, both Republicans and Democrats, and said, hey, you know, we, we really need you to, to do this one more time. And that took me a long time to come to that conclusion, uh, that uh, I had... I was tired. Uh, it's a long that's a long haul to carry at that load. As Attorney General, and the load never ends. It's twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. You You have a, two, at least two cell phones on me at all times. Uh, you know, there was never a moment in in twenty years that I haven't had phone calls, responsibilities, speeches, this, but most of all, decisions to make. So I was tired. But I ran because um, I felt like we needed to um, give folks an opportunity to make a, a choice. They made that choice. We live in a, in a democratic society. When I, meet, when I say that, there's two kinds of democracy that I'm talking about. One is the direct democracy. We don't have that. We have representative democracy. Uh, Folks get upset, while we have a Republican form of government. Yes, it's a Republican form of government, but but there's a small d democracy that we're talking about. And the answer is the people get to make their choice, and they made their choice. And so for me, it was uh, I wanted to act in office from day one so that when my time was over, that I could look myself in the mirror and like what I saw, and, and I am satisfied with what we have done. You leave these positions in one of three ways you can die, you can uh, quit, end, or you can get beat. That, that, that's the only three ways out of it. And the answer is, I really feel like I have served the people of the state of Idaho, being true to the rule of law throughout the entirety of my career.
1: Looking back on that career, what are you most proud of?
5: There are a couple things that I'm very proud of. One of them is uh, that we have saved children Uh, Just a couple of examples. We worked really hard on the uh, safety of children on the internet. Just one example of that is uh, I was giving a presentation in Post Falls to a middle school, a junior high school, and a young girl, I think she was 13 years old, and she came up to us at the end of the presentation and said, I'm in contact with a man in Texas who's driving right now to Idaho to, to to meet her. And so we were able to get hold of her mother and the police chief, and about a week later, we got a call from the, I got a call from the police chief and he said, we got him. So, and that's not the only one of those we've had. We've had numerous events like that. So the fact that we're able to intercede in a way that informs parents and saves a child from a lifetime of victimization, that is a rewarding thing. Uh, that
1: that Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force. Yes. Um, can Can you explain briefly for people who aren't familiar what it does and and whether or not you know if that's going to continue in the next yeah. administration?
5: Well, uh, the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force is a task force that is housed in my in my office, but it includes law enforcement officers from across the state and also our federal partners. And we uh, target uh, child pornography. And why that's important is because every pornographic picture of a child is a picture of a crime scene. That's what it is. It is a child who is being sexually abused. And that is a picture of a crime scene. So consumers of that, you're consuming and creating a market for a child to be abused. And it's not just that, but it's also the physical abuse. We don't have, uh, I don't know, we've done a statistical study, but by by far and away, the large majority of persons who have and possess uh, child pornography are also physically abusing children. And so we can't turn away from that. We have to do something about that. And so on many occasions, we have been able to save A child. I I had actually was talking to some media folks some time ago and spoke directly with the television station, and two weeks later, the head of the television station called me and said, hey, I have two sons who were contacted by someone who wanted to sexually abuse them. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that is rewarding. We don't go out and make a big deal of it, but it is really the kind of rewarding things that, that we've been able to do. One of the other things that I felt really comfortable with uh, that we were very successful, and that was the project with the media, and that was the uh, open meeting public records training, and the fact that I don't know that we'll ever be able to determine how many uh, fights we were able to avoid, but certainly we've been able to help quell some of those, those that's gonna continue, but but to train uh, local government officers and the media and the public all at the same time, so that everybody's hearing the same, uh, same uh, message, I think has been hugely successful.
1: I know in, in my experience, so many of the open meeting violations and public records violations weren't f- for malicious reasons. They right. were because people weren't familiar right. with the law on these, on these right. small councils. Um, you know, You mentioned things that you're proud of. Is there anything you would have done differently?
5: Yes, there is. Uh, Early uh, in my first uh, year of being the Attorney General, we proposed a bill to the legislature that was not a proper bill. Ultimately, Mm -hmm. was determined to be unconstitutional. Terrible mistake on my part. Unfortunately, what happened was I failed to read the bill. You know, you're drinking from a fire hose when you first come in the office. And someone says, hey, this is what we got to do, okay and I didn't take the time to read it. That never happened again. That was a, that was a mistake. That was something we did not do properly.
4: You
1: know, uh, during your career, you were known for, as you put it, calling balls and strikes, not telling people what they wanted to hear, yeah. especially after I imagined that lesson, your first yes. term. Um, but, but what you thought was the correct constitutional interpretation, mm-hmm. um, that cost you some of your working relationships with lawmakers. Uh, I know that you had a long running fight with Governor Otter who ultimately endorsed your yeah. run, um, but, but would you have handled that, any of those actually,
5: inter- that That actually cost me the primary election, to be honest with you. And that was the Texas versus Pennsylvania case. And the answer is I did what was right. I didn't do what was politically popular. I did what was right, what the Constitution required of me. I defended the federal the system. I defended the state of Idaho and its sovereignty in that case. Lots of folks don't understand that. They are, you know, uh, acting on a motion or political agenda and without really understanding what really was at stake in that case. So that's a prime example of, as the Attorney General, you gotta call, call balls and strikes. You gotta call make the hard call, the one that's not easy, the one that's not popular. Uh, and that can be difficult.
1: After the 2014 primary, I remember talking to you and you said that you know, the Republican party is in a fight for its heart and soul. How's that fight going right now?
5: Uh, that's a darn good question. And uh, I think the party has to figure out what it is and uh, where is its heart and its soul.
1: Compared to eight years ago when we had that conversation same trajectory, step forward, step back?
5: Step to the side.
1: Step to the side in your estimation. Um, you know, I, I do have to ask, um, what's next for you?
5: That's a good question, don't entirely know. Uh, I'm not sure what I wanna be when I grow up. Uh, so uh, we've got a couple of irons in the fire and um, you know, not really at this point ready to talk about that. Uh, I do need to take some time to kind of um, sort of heal, I've had some health challenges over the last few months and pretty significant things and a lot of that is caused by stress and I need to kind of decompress a little bit. Are you doing okay? Uh, I'm all right.
1: Okay. Uh, are you ruling out future runs for office?
5: Uh, <clears throat> I learned long ago that you don't rule anything out. So I'm not saying I am, not saying I'm not, but you know, I, I b- honestly believe I've, I've Put in my time in public service. I have every one of us owes uh, our society something. I only think I've 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 made my contribution.
1: If you have any advice for the incoming attorney general, and we have about two minutes left, what would that advice be?
5: I wouldn't give him any advice. Uh, You know, I I think that uh, that would not be well received. And, first of all, and secondly, I really think that's uh, a choice for him to make.
1: You know, I, I know that you say it wouldn't be re- well received, but I know that there's a long tradition with presidents who are leaving office, mm-hmm. whether or not they retired or were term limited out or lost, that they would write notes to mm-hmm. their, the people who were succeeding them. Um, are you sure it wouldn't be well received?
5: I, I think that uh, we just ought to let that, uh, let that one ride. Uh, there's, you know, um, people have made their choice and we'll stand by the people's choice.
1: If he has questions for you, are you going to pick up the phone and continue that relationship with him? Or after that primary, is, is frankly, the relationship too strained?
5: Um, if he wants to pick up the phone and ask questions, he's most welcome to do so.
1: One last question, um, the state of Idaho is often involved in multiple court cases at any given time, you know, often challenging the federal government um, on multiple other issues. Are there any court cases that are currently in progress that might be affected by this transition?
5: Well, there are a lot of cases that are currently in, pro- in process. And can there be an effect? There can be. Uh, what will that be, I have no idea. We litigate properly, and we'll just see what happens.
1: Any cases that come to mind in specific, or specifically? There's
5: there's a number of abortion cases that are currently before the Idaho Supreme Court and the federal district court, and they're high-profile. I'm sure folks will be watching. Um, I don't know that there'll be any uh, severe change of direction. There may be. I I don't know. All I know is that uh, we will till till the end of my term we will litigate as we're supposed to
1: have to leave it there thank you so much for joining us and thank you for watching
0: presentation of idaho reports on idaho public television is made possible through the generous support of the laura moore cunningham foundation committed to fulfilling the moore and bettis family legacy of building the great state of idaho BY THE FRIENDS OF IDAHO PUBLIC TELEVISION AND BY THE CORPORATION FOR PUBLIC
3: BROADCASTING.